Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. have a seat. There once was a man who built his house on a rock, and then no storms ever came, nothing bad ever happened. He lived happily ever after. That's not how the story goes, is it? If you know that famous song or that famous story that Jesus told, it goes something more like this. There was a wise man who built his house on a rock. A storm came, and because he'd built in the right place, his house didn't fall flat. There was another man, a foolish man, who built his house on the beach, on sand. And when the storm came, it washed away everything, his house, the sand, and his life. Today we're going to look at a story from 2 Samuel chapter 10 of a man who finds himself in a storm. Not a storm like we've been experiencing the last couple of days of rain and uh, wind and all of that kind of thing, but a a storm um, that risks his life. I wonder if you have felt yourself to be in one of those kind of situations where, where you're, you feel like you're standing on a little piece of sand and behind you is an unclimbable cliff and in front of you is the monstrous advancing sea and that piece of sand that you're standing on is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. You've got a frying pan one side and a fire on the other. I wonder if you can relate to that at the moment in life in struggles and suffering, and one thing gets cleared up, and then it seems you're on to the next. And life is just difficult wherever you turn. It seems really, really hard. The question is, what kind of person are you? How do you deal with those kind of situations? Are you a planner? Are you somebody who um, who thinks, 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 prepares, 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 and tries to think a way out of it? So perhaps you don't sleep. You just plan and plan and worry and worry and plan and think and plan. Are you that kind of person when trouble comes? Or perhaps you are head down, don't think about it, just charge off in some direction, don't think about it too much, just do something kind of a person. Don't stop to feel the dread. Or maybe you're the opposite, maybe you're paralyzed, maybe you panic and you don't know what to do and so you just stand there and struggle. Well, when you're in that kind of situation, when a storm is coming from every side, it seems, how can you have peace? That's the question. When we don't know what's going to happen, when we don't know if it'll be the sea that gets us or the cliff or if someone will come and rescue us or not. How do you have peace in that kind of situation? How do you know what to do when you have no idea what to do? That's the kind of situation we find in the story today. So let me read it to you. It's 2 Samuel chapter 10, if you've got one of these blue church Bibles. It's on page 313. 313. In the course of time... The king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanun succeeded him as king. David thought, I'll show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. Nahash was probably a man who helped David out when he was running away from Saul. We don't have him, he's not mentioned before, but that's probably from where he lives, where the Ammonites live, and um, and what David would have done in that area, that's probably who he is, somebody who maybe rescued and helped David on his way when he was running away from Saul in the last book. So David says, let me show loyal kindness to him. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy 
to Hanun concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite nobles said to Hanun their laws, Do you think David is honoring your father by sending men to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you to explore the city and spy out and overthrow it? So Hanun seized David's men, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks, and sent them away. When David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then come back. When the Ammonites realized that, that, what, that what they had done had become an offense to David's nostrils, they hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth Rehob and Zobah, as well as the king of Maka with 1,000 men, and also 12,000 men from Tob. On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. The Ammonites came out and drew up in battle formation at the entrance to their city gate, while the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and of Maka were by themselves in the open country. Joab saw that there were battle lines in front of him and behind him. So he selected some of the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Arameans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites. Joab said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you're to come to my rescue. If the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to rescue you. Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. Then Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans, and they fled before them, before him. When the Ammonites saw that the Arameans were fleeing, they fled before Abishai and went into the city. So Joab returned from fighting the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. After the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they regrouped. Hadadezer had Arameans brought him from beyond the river. They went to Helam with Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, leading them. When David was told of this, he gathered all Israel, crossed the Jordan, went to Helam. The Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him, but they fled before Israel. And David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings who were vassals of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. And the people of God live in peace. I wonder if there's a lot of strange names and strange happenings, things that seem extremely far away from us, not just in time, but in culture as well. Maybe that's how you're finding the whole of 2 Samuel, that it just feels very strange and peculiar. And why couldn't we just study the stories of Jesus or study some of the letters of Paul, you know, that give us a bit of, of more obvious theology or some, some maybe nicer stories that aren't about people buttocks and strange things like that or you know weird names and and 40,000 dead and blood and guts all over the place perhaps we come to second samuel and it just feels very very strange well i wonder if as you were going through that story as well as all of the strangeness and alienness there were also some very familiar things did you see there was love and war and peace those are three things pretty familiar to many of us Love, but perhaps not love as we think about it in our culture most often today. War and peace. But the peace I want to focus on is the peace I was talking about at the beginning. Not the peace that comes at the very end in verse 19, you know, peace in the end of war, but the peace of our hearts. Peace that you get in the only verse that mentions God's name in the whole chapter. I don't know if you noticed that. Verse, um, verses 12 and 13. 
sorry, 11 and 13, 11 and 12. If the Arameans are too strong for me, says Joab, then you are to come to my rescue. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to rescue you. And then this one is the one I want to focus on today. Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. That's Joab speaking. Joab with an unclimbable cliff behind him, a lot of soldiers, and an an advancing monstrous sea in front of him, a lot of soldiers from another place, stuck between a, a rock and a hard place with his friend, his brother, Abishai. A lot of soldiers of their own, but they have no idea what's going to happen. So this is what we're looking at today. We're looking at loyal love. Um, unrequited love. And then we're going to look at unwise war. And the third thing, although really we're going to look at it first, is uncertain confidence. So think about what Joab says here. Let's look at that confidence, this peace that he has. It's uncertain confidence. Do you see that? It's confidence, but without certainty. Think about it. What's he uncertain about? He's uncertain about the outcome of the battle. He's uncertain about what's going to happen. He has no idea. He knows it's going to be difficult. He knows a storm is coming, but he doesn't know when. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know if he'll struggle and Abishai will have to come and try and rescue him, or if Abishai will struggle and if he'll have to go and try and rescue Abishai, or if all of them will die, or if all of them will survive. He has no idea what's going to happen in the battle. He's really uncertain about the circumstances. But he's very, very certain. He's completely secure. He's very confident in one thing. Did you hear that? Be strong. Let us fight bravely for our people and our cities of our, uh, and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what's good in his sight. And we don't know what that is, but we know that it will be good, whatever happens. If you die, Abishai, well, it'll be sad and we'll mourn you, but the Lord will have done what's good. We know we can trust him. If I die, well, that'll be sad. But we know that it will be good, ultimately, because the Lord is good and we trust him. If we win this battle, it'll be good for the peace of the land. If we don't, well, the Lord has some other plan. And that will be good because he's good and we can trust him to do what's good in his sight. So you see, Joab has confidence, even though he doesn't have certainty. You see, that's a bit of a funny thing, isn't it? Kind of uncertain confidence. I wonder if you know that. I think the man who built his house on a rock knew that. He knew that a storm was coming. He didn't know when. He just presumed that it would at some point, probably. But he knew that rocks are solid, and so he built his house, drove the piles down deep, built the walls out of something solid, and survived. He made it through, and he knew peace even in the middle of the storm. So that's Joab, isn't it? Finds himself in a very tricky situation. Finds himself in doubt, in suspense about circumstances, but with no doubt about God's goodness. He says, well, there's going to be temporary pain. I mean, that's probable, isn't it, in each of our lives? But eternal security is certain. It's strange that Joab's saying this, by the way, because Joab is a complete brute. I wonder if you've heard that psalm. You know, out of, out of the mouths of babes, you've ordained praise. Well, this is Joab, out of the mouth of a, out of the mouth of a brute, out of the, the mouth of a, a blood spiller, a pretty horrible guy in many ways, comes an incredible piece of theology, a piece of theology I want us to hold on to today and tomorrow, and until the Lord comes home, or we go home to be with him. So let's learn and look and see, where does that kind of certainty come from? Do you see, do you know, I wonder if you've tasted that kind of certainty before, this certainty that Joab feels, even though he might be about to die, even though his brother might be about to die, he has peace. 
Where does that peace come from, I wonder? Well, I think it comes from what Joab has seen and experienced. I wonder if you've ever experienced, I don't know, going to the cinema or something, and you see a film that really stirs your heart, stirs your soul, and you come out and you just feel two inches, six inches taller. You feel like you want to take on the world. You feel like you want to, I don't know, go and join the army and serve, serve your country, or you want to go and, and take on orcs and, um, and all sorts of strange creatures. Or you, you just feel sort of changed and transformed because of something you've seen, haven't you? Maybe you're more of a musical type and you hear a piece of music on the radio, or you've been to a concert. Maybe it happened if you went to the proms, and all of that music stirs up your heart and kind of changes you, at least for a moment. It makes you, your face shine, and you want to grab other people and say, come on, let's go and do something great together. Have you ever experienced that? Well, Joab feels that and experiences that in his life. Something that he sees, two things that he sees, I think, change him. From a guy who is taking the law into his own hands, who who has stabbed people in cold blood because he's so torn up with jealousy and anger. That's in previous chapters. A man like that he seems to be completely transformed. So here he is saying, come on, let's fight bravely. And he puts it into the Lord's hands and knows peace, even though everything else um, seems uncertain and stormy. How does he get that? Where does that kind of certainty come from? I think he, he gets it from the two things, other things I mentioned. He gets it from seeing unrequited love, and from seeing unwise war, from seeing love and war. Let's have a look at those two. Look back at the beginning of the chapter. Let's follow the story along. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died. Who were the Ammonites? The Ammonites were not nice people. You can read back in 1 Samuel. You might well remember the Ammonites. This is a bit gory. The Ammonites are people who, when they defeat a a, a nation, they scoop out the right eyes of the people they've defeated. Horrid people. They don't just do that. Later on in 1 Kings, The Ammonites, who are still around, um, when they defeat people, they go into their towns and cities and don't just kill the soldiers, but they find pregnant women and they cut them open so they can kill two generations of people at the same time. The Ammonites are not nice people. But what does David do? When the Ammonite king um, died, David thought, I'll show kindness, love, loyal love. That word is hesed, if you've been around in rooted groups or know a little bit of the Old Testament, it's an extremely important word. David thought, I will show hesed, loyal, loving kindness, to Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. David shows love, sympathy, in a sad and tragic time for his enemies, for people who have helped him once in the past, but now are causing trouble for him. David shows love, for people who don't deserve it, loyal love to them. He's done that in the chapter before. By the way, um, we've skipped over, you might have noticed, two chapters since last week's sermon. But in chapter 9, it's all about David doing exactly the same thing, showing hesed, showing love. He says in the beginning of chapter 9, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness, hesed, for Jonathan's sake? Saul's house were his rivals. Saul's grandson, this this man called Mephibosheth, who's crippled, is going to be or should potentially be one of David's rivals, even though he's crippled. And so David should really, by rights, if he was doing what the other kings around him would have done, should have bumped him off, should have got rid of him, should have cleaned out Saul's house, house altogether. But he doesn't. He does the opposite. Read the story. Take it home. Grab that commentary and read it with somebody this afternoon. It's a beautiful story of God's chosen king taking a completely helpless, disabled young man, 
who should be his enemy, and bringing him to his table, making him one of his sons, covering over his shame, saying, no, don't be an enemy of mine anymore. Come close, eat at my table, and be at peace with me, God's king. Be at peace with God. Be a part of my family. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel, and it's another thing that Joab has seen. Joab has seen David's steadfast love for people who just don't deserve it. But you know, Joab hasn't just seen David do that. Because when Joab looks at David, well, who's David? He's God's chosen king. He's God's representative on earth. So when Joab looks at David and sees his love for his enemies, Joab recognizes that he's seeing God's love for his enemies. Let me prove that to you. In verse 3 of chapter 9, if you look down, if you're following along, David has just asked, how can I show love to somebody from Saul's family? Then he hears about Mephibosheth and he says, all right, The king asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? You see, he understands that when he is God's king, God's chosen king shows kindness, that's God showing kindness. And Joab gets that as well. So he's been right there at David's right hand. He's his top general. And when he sees David love his enemies, pray for those who persecute him. When he's seen David welcome enemies to the table. When he's seen David send people to to commiserate with his enemies and say, come on, let's be friends, let's make peace. When he sees that, he sees something just remarkable, something that makes him think, that is the God for me. That's the God I want to follow until I die. That is the God who I can completely trust with my entire life. You see, when Joab sees David, he sees what God is like. He sees that God is a God who loves his enemies. But it's not just that. Because it's very nice for God to love his enemies, isn't it? It's very nice for him to look after people who should hate him. I mean, that's lovely, but does he have any power to follow that through? Does he have any power to put into action his good intentions? Does he have any go forward in kind of rugby terms? It's, it's fine to have the best outside half in the world, but if your forwards are getting pounded and you're always on the back foot, you've got no momentum, you've got no power or strength in your team, you can have whoever you like in, the back, in, in your back line, you will never make any progress. And so it is with, with God. He can have all the good intentions in the world. He can be the most loving God in the universe. But if he's got no power, well, what's he going to do about it? It doesn't matter. If you've got good intentions, but you can't follow them through, it doesn't matter at all, does it? You could, might as well just have bad intentions. So it's not just God's love that Joab sees. It's something else. He sees his power. He sees his victory in unwise wars, unwise from the perspective of those who tangle with God, as we read in Psalm 2, of people who stand against God and his anointed one. That's David writing that psalm and looking down on all these victories and saying, how stupid are people to stand against God? How silly can you be to take on the God who invented you, who lends breath and puts that in your lungs? To take on the God who keeps running all of the laws of physics that keep your atoms together, that hold your bodies together, that keeps your heart beating and your mind running. How silly can you be to stand against that God? That's what Joab has seen as well. And that's back in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is a list of David's victories. This king took him on, got defeated. This king took him on, got defeated. This king took him on, got defeated. This king realized what was good for him and laid down his arms and said, can we be at peace? And David said, yes, come in, come and be a part of us. Come and be one, come and know this God. But you see, Joab has seen, just like with love, that David's victories, David's strength, aren't all about David. When Joab looks at David, 
he sees God's strength. He sees God's victories. I'll prove that to you that as well. That's back in chapter 8. Have a look at a verse like chapter 8, verse 6. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. Or chapter, uh, verse, chapter 8, verse 14. He put garrisons through Edom, put all the Edomites, and all the Edomites became subject to David. Who was it really that did it, though? The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. See, that's what Joab's seen. Joab's been there when God has shown through David love to people who don't deserve it. And he's been there when God has crushed people, oppressors who've been oppressing Israel, who've been cutting open pregnant women, who've been sacrificing their own children, who've been brutalizing people around them. He's been there when God has worked out his love, his goodness, and crushed badness, when he's swept away darkness and brought light, when he's, when he's crushed violence and brought peace. See, Joab's been there when David has won victories, and most of them Joab won for him because he was the general, but he knows, really, it wasn't just David, it was God. And so here he is in another sticky situation. We've kind of had that big list of battles, and now we get to zoom in on one of them and see how Joab fights his battles. And how does he do it? How does he stand between a rock and a hard place? How does he know peace? How does he have clarity of mind to make a plan and then to go, but I have no idea if it'll work, so I'm trusting myself to the good God. How does he have that kind of confidence and security and peace? Well... The Lord will do what's good in his sight. The Lord is good. The Lord loves even enemies, even men with blood on their hands like me. He loves us, but he doesn't just love us. He can do something about that. He can sweep away darkness and bring light. He can turn death into life. He can turn war and oppression into peace and freedom and justice. That's the God that we serve. That's the God who's able to do it. I don't know if he'll do it right now, I don't know how this battle will turn out, but I know he's good, and that the Lord always works good for those who love him. That to live is to live for him, and serve him, and fight for him, and for his people. And to die, well, that would be gain. There's an old hymn, and a, a line in it says this, the people in heaven, they're more happy, but not more secure. I wonder if some of, some of you recognize that. They're the glorified spirits in heaven, those who've died and who are with Jesus right now in spirit, they're more happy than we are because they get to see him face to face. But they're not more secure than Joab was in this battle. They're not more secure than you and I. So here we go. Let's do some application. What's your rock and hard place? What's your monstrous sea and unclimbable cliff that seems to be hemming you in? What is it? I wonder what it is in your life. Statistically, a huge proportion of us in here will develop cancer. Statistically, there are people sitting here right now who are really, really struggling in their marriages. Statistically, there are people here right now who are going through all sorts of pain. You could put whatever you want in. And we as Christians, if you're a Christian here this morning, are not immune to that. You know that. I know that. We feel that. We know that people in our church, people who aren't here this morning, are going through horrible things just like everybody else does in the world. You see, God doesn't promise us that when we build our house on a rock, that the storm won't come. He doesn't promise Joab that he'll win every battle. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he comes in and says, yes, go and fight them because you'll win. But most of the time, they just go and fight because that's what God has told them to do. Most of the time, they just trust him and they don't know how it's going to turn out. They just trust that he's good, 
trust that he's got a plan. And so they make it their own little plan and, and go and see what happens. So what's your rock and hard place? How are you feeling in that? Do you feel calm of mind? Kind of joyful deep down? Do you feel peace in your spirit? Even when everything is a storm around you? I want this morning really to warn you, if you've been watching TV preachers, if you've been listening to, um, to stuff, especially that comes from America, sadly, you'll hear a lot of basically the story I said at the beginning. If you build your house on Jesus, if you have fit, enough faith in him, nothing will go wrong for you. And if it does, it's because you didn't have enough faith. You didn't build your house strong enough. That is complete demonic nonsense. Jesus stands against that and tells a story which is the complete opposite that the foolish man builds on sand and the storm comes, that the wise man builds on rock and the storm comes all the same. All of us, if you haven't felt it or known it already, if you're not there right now, we'll have a rock and a hard place moment. So how can you know peace? How can you know Joab's attitude? How can you say to the people around you and to your own heart, come on, be strong, fight bravely for God and for our people because the Lord will do what's good in his sight. I don't know if he'll cure me, I don't know if he'll give me a job. I don't know if he'll, if he'll fix my marriage. I don't know if it'll all work out and we'll live happily ever after in this life. But I know that he's good and that whatever he does will be for my good and for his glory. So if it's rotten and it feels horrendous, God has some purpose in it. We may not find out and he may not fix it right now, but he will fix it one day. It may be all right. He he may well fix it now. But really, even if he does, there's way better to look forward to. So don't trust in that. Well, how do we do it? How do we develop this kind of mind of Joab? Well, we need to look and see and taste the same things that Joab saw. And you can see them in this, pointing towards something even better than what Joab saw. So think about those two things Joab saw again. Let's think about love and God's love for his people. Well, look, think about what these men went through. These men who David sends along, they have their beards shaved off, half of them. They have their clothes cut off. They're completely shamed. What does David do? Well, he keeps them out at arm's length for a while until, you know, their beards grow back. Sammy says to me, it's about a month. Uh, for me, it would probably be about 10 years. But, um, but apparently, it's about a month if you can grow a beard to, to a decent beard length. So here are these men who are sent in love to their enemies and they have their beards cut off, and their clothes cut off, and then they walk the walk of shame. Imagine them leaving that city, half naked, beards torn out. That's their masculinity right there, embarrassed, walking the walk of shame out of the city. And then when they come to David, David's a bit embarrassed, and he's embarrassed for them, and so he makes them stay away, and they can't even come home for another month or so. Now, does that remind you of anyone? David shows incredible love to Ammonites who would do that. What has great David's greatest son shown? How has he shown love like that? Well, he didn't just send people. He came himself. When he came to his enemies, they didn't just trim his beard. They ripped it out. And on that same night, they didn't just cut off half his clothes. They stripped him naked and beat him near to death, shredding the skin on his back. And then they didn't stop there. They made him walk the walk of shame outside of Jerusalem and walk up a hill. And they didn't just send him home. They sent him to his death. They made him climb a hill and they nailed him to a tree. And you know what he could have done? He could have done what David did. He could have said, enough of that, enough of that love, enough of that has said, you've run out of loyalty, I'm going to come and get you. And, he, and so here, David brings down, if you like, 
a legion, uh, legions of God's soldiers, legions of angels, they're people in this story, but, and they wipe out their enemies. They crush them once and for all. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus climbed up that hill, didn't just go home, but he died forsaken by his father outside the city wall, outside of God's love, outside of God's favor. And nobody came to rescue him. He didn't call down his legions of angels, even though people mocked him and said, go on then, if you're really the son of God, rescue yourself. But he chose not to. As somebody has said that Jesus went to the cross and in the greatest act of love in human history, he stayed. That that was the thing, not even just going to the cross, but staying on the cross and not judging and giving all these people who were doing it what they deserved. He, he didn't. He showed way more loyal Hesed love than David did. David's ran out. Jesus's doesn't run out. Jesus looks down from that cross at his enemies and doesn't curse them, doesn't call angels down on them. But he says, do you remember? Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. Jesus shows love beyond measure. But that's all well and good. It's nice that he's an example of love. It's nice that God loves us that much to give his only son. But what use is it? What use is it if we still die? What use is it if we still suffer? And we do, don't we? What use is that death 2,000 years ago? I mean, it's nice that God would suffer with us, but what's the point unless he's got strength to fix this suffering? Unless he's got strength to sweep away our hardest and darkest of enemies and make things right? Well, you see, Jesus doesn't just show us God's love. He shows us his victory, his power over other unwise enemies. Let me read you some wonderful verses that we'll read on Easter Sunday. When Jesus went to the cross, three days later, death couldn't hold him and he rose from the grave. And this is what Paul says about that. He says, death now has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. And if you read in Colossians 3, what has Jesus done? He's taken that sin on his shoulders. That's why he died in the dark. That's why God turned his face away. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's why he, though he was perfect, died because he'd taken that sin on his shoulders. He took it away. And that law that stood over us that says, you've done wrong, he took that away as well. It was nailed to the cross. And so now what happens? Well, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, where, O oh death, is your victory? Jesus wasn't held down by death. He had his victory, but it wasn't by sweeping away the people there. It was by walking into the jaws of death, by walking into that monstrous sea of death and then walking through it and out the other side so that death had no power anymore, so that he stood over it. That final worst of all enemies of death is nothing. It's just a shadow for us now that we pass through until the other side when we're with Jesus in new bodies. And that enemy of sin as well, that seems we just can't seem to get rid of it. Jesus has broken its back. So it still wriggles and bites and gets its teeth into us now and again. But really, its power is gone. You can get free of it because Jesus has broken it. And Satan, that dark, strange power that we don't like to think about as modern people, you know, the devil, and who, who believes in that these days? But, well, we do because we know there's more evil than just in the human heart. There's something behind it. 
there's some inky black darkness. Well, Jesus has crushed him too. And he's still around, devouring and roaring, but he's on a leash. Jesus has won a victory. Do you see, his love that he shows at the cross is not just good intentions. It's not just him trying to show how nice he is and how much he empathizes with us. But no, he goes through that Friday, through Saturday in the grave, and then on Sunday morning, up from the grave he arose. Now death has been swallowed up in victory. So come on then, death. Where's your victory? Come on then, death. Where's your sting? It's just a shadow. Jesus, thanks be to God, has given us victory. So therefore, Paul says, my dear brothers, isn't this just what Joab says? Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You know your suffering for the Lord is not in vain. He suffers with you. You know your labor for him as you're trying to reach out to that person on your, on your road, as you're trying to reach out to that person in work and share this good news with them, that they don't have to be afraid of death, that that thing they just can't stop doing, they don't have to do it anymore, that its power has been broken, that that darkness that seems to creep in to relationships and everything has been broken and we don't have to live under it anymore. You see, as we're trying to do that, as we're laboring for Jesus, as we're fighting between a rock and a hard place, we know that there's hope. We know that that cancer or something will get us one day unless Jesus comes back first. But we know that that's not the end because Jesus is good and he's planned all things for good for us. So how are we going to get through it? Well, we need to look to God and see his love for us, even for his enemies, even with people like you and me, like Joab, who have blood on their hands. We need to come and bow to him. There's plenty of of enemies who get crushed with blood on their hands, who still keep insisting on fighting against this good God. And eventually their time runs out. Please, if that's you this morning, if you don't know Jesus, don't let your time run out. Come to him today and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I want to bow the knee to you and be one of your people. Even though I have blood on my hands, would you wash it off and give me the same peace, the same certainty that Joab has, the same confidence and security, even when I have no idea what tomorrow holds. I want that, and I want you. We need to love God. We need to see his power. We need to bow to him so that those things belong to us. And we need one more thing. We need each other. You see, Joab has Abishai, and Abishai has Joab. And Joab reminds Abishai, I don't know if he was petrified or or what, but Joab says, remember, God is good. Whatever happens, we can trust him. So let's fight. Let's be brave. Let's do what we need to do for God's people and for him. Let's do what he's called us to do. So who's your Abishai who stands with you? Who's your Joab who encourages you? Do you have somebody like that who's always drawing your eyes to the love of Jesus and to the victory and power of Jesus? Do you have somebody who, when you're holding on to those things, holds on to you and says, come on, let's do it together. If you don't have somebody like that, um, well, then let's pray that you would. And look out today for who's around you, for who God has put literally next to you in your seats. Introduce yourself to them. Ask how they came to know Jesus. And let's see what we can do together as God calls us to fight for him. Shall we pray together? Lord God, we thank you so much for this rich Old Testament. We thank you so much for the stories in there that aren't just like theological definitions, but that they're stories of people who, even though they hadn't seen you as we've seen you, even though they didn't know Jesus' name as we know his name, even though they hadn't seen his cross as we've seen his cross, even though they haven't felt that final victory 
as we felt that victory. Lord, they still trusted in you. They still had great faith and great bravery. Even with blood on their own hands, even guilty of sin, they were able to have confidence and fight for you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be like Joab and Abishai this week and through the rest of our lives, whatever comes to us. Lord, whatever storms we know are coming, Lord, we don't know whether you'll rescue us from them now or whether you'll rescue us from them then. But we know that you'll rescue. We know that you're good. We know that you have a purpose and we know that you have the power to pull it off. So Lord, we thank you that you have kept us safe, that you keep us safe and that you promise to keep us safe. Lord, help us to stick to those promises we know are sure and to stay in suspense, trusting in you with everything that we don't know um, in our own lives. Lord, we pray that you'd give us this great confidence. For those who don't know it, Lord, we pray that this would be a day where they begin to know it. For those of us who feel lonely in it, Lord, would you give us friends and would you give us yourself to walk through all that you've called us to do for your glory, for the good of your people, as we follow you, our good God. Amen. hope that you found today's message useful and challenging and we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss if you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church make sure to like us on Facebook and lastly check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts Thanks for listening.